0: Open our eyes Lord that we might see open our ears that we might hear open our mind and our heart that we might understand so that we will turn to you and live so during during Lent we're taking a, a little detour um, in, our, in the preaching and we're going through the beatitudes last Lent we went through the seven deadly sins and um, I love these, these moments where we can particularly um, center around something as a community, but it's always difficult because we read these, these uh, potent and powerful scriptures, and I'm not going to preach on them, but they will come back around uh, again, and they have before, so. <clears throat> Jesus, would you open our eyes so that we could see? Would you open our ears so we could hear? Would you open our mind and our hearts so we'd understand, so that we would turn to you and truly live. Amen. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' unsettling, enticing, provocative announcement of what God's kingdom is like and what it's like, particularly as it's taking shape in tangible form in our life and our world. Starting with the Beatitudes, we hear how in God's kingdom, the very people we would presume to be at the bottom of the heap are in fact blessed. The Beatitudes are not primarily giving us a litmus test, telling us what we need to do in order to get blessed. It's something far more provocative than that. The Beatitudes are a pronouncement of the shocking reality that the very people surrounding Jesus, many of whom would have been considered the losers, actually found themselves in a previously inconceivable position. They were being blessed. Different versions um, of the scriptures translate this word blessed in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's blissful. Sometimes it's happy. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, um, got in a lot of trouble when he put it lucky, <laughs> blessed. I want to read um, the entire Beatitudes to you again, just like we read them last week. And I want to start in chapter four because I want to hear, I want you to hear again who these people are that are gathered around Jesus who are hearing Jesus's wild pronouncement of blessing. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region around the Jordan followed him. And now when Jesus saw these crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God of heaven the word of the lord what we discover here is that jesus is not just making things up he's responding to those who are around him but even more than that he's not only responding to those around him he's not making up some sort of varied list he's actually evoking in his own words the prophet isaiah And Isaiah 61, and this is one of the great words from the prophets that Israel would have carried with them as, as their hope. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, Isaiah says, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. Blessed are the poor. And then Isaiah says... He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And then moving down, he says, God has sent me to comfort all who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, Isaiah said. And Isaiah said that one would come from God who would actually enact this blessing and this comfort. And here Jesus stands among the broken, the bruised, the forgotten, the pushed aside, and this Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. The Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes and like all of Scripture only makes sense if it ever makes sense. It only makes sense if you reckon with Jesus. Scripture and the Jesus that Scriptures give us doesn't Not provide just some abstract ethical system that we humans are to go and work out on our own the best we can. They don't give us rigid rules to maintain adherence to a religious ideal. They don't provide random nuggets of wisdom and inspiration that we are to pick up and sort of position and piece together in our life the best we can with the kind of life we're trying to construct for ourselves. The scriptures offer us a living encounter with Jesus Christ raised from the dead. They offer us an encounter with the God who in his very body, in his very life, holds the entirety of human history. Everything we have experienced, everything we are to become, it is summed up, completed, and made new in the person of Jesus Christ. The scriptures offer us a humanity, a possibility that depends beginning to end, hook, line, and sinker on Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is God, rose from the dead and then breathed the Holy Spirit into our very being. And now the kingdom of God is breaking in everywhere. As we sang today, it is in this Christ and by this Spirit that heaven is coming to earth and everything that we thought we knew, everything that made sense to us, is all of a sudden being rearranged. This is the problem that I'm finding with a lot of church stuff, and unfortunately, I've had a lot of preaching. A lot of the stuff that we do in church, if you really get down to it, doesn't require Jesus much at all. We have our wisdoms, we have our plans, our ideas, our histories. Sometimes Jesus is used as a tribal language to send signals and to get people on your side so that you can get in... Get on and get engaged with the things that you really care about that actually have very little to do with Jesus who subverts most all of our ideals. It's kind of an aside, but I was thinking about this this week. Actually, in the Beatitudes, and I'll have to talk to you more later about maybe why this is the case, but it's why as a pastor that I won't endorse political candidates. And it really has very little to do with IRS regulations It has to do with my unwillingness to participate in the kingdom of God being swallowed up by another kingdom. There are the machinations of another kingdom, and we're foolish if we think that they play fair. I haven't been around that long. In fact, I'm uh, doing a wedding this week, and uh, last night at the rehearsal dinner, um, someone came up to me and said, You're not old enough to be the pastor. And I said, How old do you think I am? I'm like, early 30s. I was like, great, thank you. (laughs) But I have been around a fair bit of time in the church and the world, and Jesus and the kingdom of God get used all the time. And we're also fooling ourselves if we think it's only one side that does it. All the political powers do it. And it's not because the gospel doesn't have anything to say about our political realities. exactly the opposite. Sometimes the gospel has a lot to say. It's because there is another kingdom that holds our our loyalty, and that kingdom must trump every kingdom that comes against it. Whenever we proclaim scriptures, we believe that these holy words... Give us an encounter with Jesus through the Spirit. The Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge, she was one of the first uh, women ordained in the Episcopal church. When I grow up, I do want to be Fleming Rutledge. She's amazing. She often finishes her sermons with some reading from the book of John. She often manages to work her sermon so that she can conclude it by some few words from the book of John, and she would say that it's because all of her sermon is leading up to that point to allow the space for Jesus to speak for himself. So this means that my job ultimately is not to convince you of anything or cajole you into anything. That's where preaching can go really, really bad. But it is to try, by God's mercy, flawed as it will be, to offer the scriptures and allow Jesus to speak to you. This is why all of our worship points to the Eucharist, because what you really need more than anything else is for Jesus to feed you. It's why we have confessions, and we even emphasize those during during Lent, because what you most need to hear is Jesus' words of welcome and forgiveness. And this is what Jesus says to you today. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Blessed each one of you who mourn, you will be comforted. To mourn is to grieve. It's to know the weight of sorrow. Dietrich Bonhoeffer really loved how, in his translation, Martin Luther used the German word Leichtragen here, because Bonhoeffer understood that to mean sorrow-bearing. Blessed are you who are sorrow-bearing. Some of you here today, bear real sorrows. You are the brokenhearted. You are the sorrow bearer. You carry in your soul the wrenching pain of regret or the pain unleashed in this world by someone else's mistakes. You read the news and your soul trembles under the burden of it. You gather a wounded friend's story and you take in the pain and you are truly present in that heartache and it is costly to you and you are a sorrow bearer. God has given you in that a costly gift. You are a mourner in this world And that's not highly acclaimed. It won't get you much of anything. It won't move you up the ladder. It probably won't put any more dollars in your pocket. It won't help you with many relationships. It's costly. But Jesus says to you, blessed are you who mourn. Some of you bear such sorrows. You are the brokenhearted. You are a sorrow bearer. You've had numerous disappointments. You've had rejections, betrayals. Your life has not in any way gone the way you expected it to go. Some of you carry the pain of another's evil intent or action, and how far worse is it if it was done by someone that you trusted, someone that you loved, someone who was an authority figure. Some of you have been abandoned. Some of you are awake in the midnight hours because you don't know if your child will be okay. Some of you are grappling with chronic pain Or terrifying health issues. A very murky future. And you mourn. And Jesus says to you, blessed are you who mourn. Some of you bear other kinds of sorrows. You are the broken hearted. You've run for a while, but you know the godly sorrow that Paul tells us leads to repentance. And your heart has begun to turn toward repentance. And you've been undone by your failings, by the ways you've not lived up to your promises, the ways that you've been unfaithful, the ways that you have failed to love. And you Recognize that you have just made a mess of things. And you might think it's too far, it's too much, and you mourn. Jesus has a word for you. Blessed are you who mourn, you will receive God's comfort. So on Ash Wednesday, when we were there, and this happened some years, other years it doesn't, I don't know why, I was marking some of you with ashes, standing next to Dorothy, who was marking you with ashes, and I was just aware in that space, and it felt very prayerful to me. I was aware of just receiving the news about Broward, Florida. I was aware of some of you, and I I know I know where you are in your season of life. And there's a lot of heaviness. And there's hope. <laughs> what a strange juxtaposition. But you carry that in your life, in your body. I was aware of my own struggles. Thinking of my own mortality. Thinking of the hope of the kingdom of God above every other thing. And I was sitting there. We were meeting together at the front. And it was in some moments, I just... I just had tears because there we were all together being fairly truthful that things aren't all okay and we were confessing with our full heart and hope best we knew our hope in Jesus Christ and in the cross of Christ which rises over every kind of death and there we were together And those words echo in that moment, blessed, blessed are those who mourn. The church is supposed to be a place where we refuse to cower from sorrows. We don't mask them, we don't cliche them away, because we are a people who tell the truth and because we know that our world is writhing in pain. But we tell the truth most of all because we have become disciples of a Jesus who is himself a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus is the ultimate sorrow bearer. Jesus is the one who looked over Israel and all the ruin that was to come and Jesus wept. Jesus is the one who who walks us through the very valley of the shadow of death. Jesus is the one who, because he is Lord over the universe and because he has conquered death and ra- risen, uh, been raised from the dead, he can tell us that we fear no evil. Luke's version of the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you who weep. Why is it that when we're in conversation with someone and it turns pretty serious or something is is touched either through joy or pain, it can be either, and we might begin to cry, why is it that our immediate temptation is to apologize? I'm sorry, excuse me. It happened just recently with me as I was stood beside a woman on her deathbed and we were, I was praying for her as her children were around and she began to cry and within seconds she said, oh, I'm sorry, forgive me. That in of itself is something to mourn. What have we done that we've sent a message to people that you need to apologize to me? <laughs> if you feel something so deeply that tears are evoked, I think, in general, I think we are really uncomfortable with tears. It messes with us. It's why we need to learn and hold on to this gift that God has given us, this biblical language of lament. It doesn't mean that you literally have to have water coming down out of your eyes. That's perfectly fine, but there is something of the soul that is warped if we are never able to lament. I think America is awful at lament. It messes with all of our vision of overcoming, of being winners. And we push to the side people who lament and they are a gift to us. I think I told you guys recently, uh, a couple months ago, and I won't go through it again, but the time when Miska and I went through a church planters training. You guys might remember the story and how I actually was, I flunked it. So you guys are kind of (laughs) toast. But how the, the therapist that we met with was really concerned about Miska because she cried a lot. And it so ticked me off because she is someone who her soul had actually been, she would tell you this, her soul had been shut off for quite a while and her tears were a sign of liberation Gregory of Nyssa said, it is impossible for one to live without tears who considers things exactly as they are. If we are going to be a church that considers things exactly as they are, there will be times for tears. Thankfully, there is massive time for joy, but we must give tears their place. I know that we live in an era of outrage and belligerence, but I think we could use with a few more tears. Are there ever moments where all of the chaos is happening and all of the noise is happening, and deep in your soul, you literally you just don't have any words because there is such a deep sorrow in you? Bonhoeffer, when he was writing on this beatitude, he said, by morning... Jesus means refusing to be in tune with the world or to accommodate oneself to its standards. Such people mourn for the world for its guilt, its fate, and its fortune. While the world keeps holiday, they stand aside, and while the world sings, Gather ye rosebuds while ye may, they mourn. They see that for all the jo- J- 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 jollity, I can't even say it. for all the jolliness, On board, the ship is beginning to sink. The world dreams of progress, of power, and of the future, but the disciples meditate on the end, the last judgment, and the coming of the kingdom. And so the disciples are strangers in the world, unwelcome disturbers of the peace. No wonder the world rejects them. Why does the Christian church so often have to look on from outside while the nation is celebrating? And think about What would soon happen for Bonhoeffer as the Nazi powers overrun Germany. Why does the Christian church so often have to look on from outside while the nation is celebrating? Nobody loves his fellow man better than a disciple, and that very love impels them to stand aside and mourn. There's something about this posture that connects us with our deep humanity. When we say deep humanity, what we're saying is the true humanity, which is made visible to us in Jesus. It connects us with God's heart. It connects us with both the loss and the hope. I believe that mourning posture of tears, being a sorrow bearer, keeps us close to something in our soul that we may be at risk of losing. The heart of God for a broken humanity. And the heart of God for our own brokenness. But Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are you who mourn, you will be comforted by the God of all comfort. Would you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you.